This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. Creativity, innovation, and determination are topics of conversation in this episode. I'm with Gregory Burns, artist, storyteller, and Olympian. It's an unlikely combination of talents and the fabric of a man who's made Singapore his home. I met with Greg in a remote industrial outpost far from the glitter of this city-state's financial district. By picking my way through warehouses and go-downs, I found Greg alone in his gallery workshop, where he sat surrounded by hundreds of his own Impressionist paintings. There, we kicked off our conversation. I'm going to dive right in because, as you'll hear, there's lots of conversational territory to cover. I started by asking Greg how and when he first made contact with Asia. Greg Burns, we're in your gallery here in Singapore. That would be Gregory Burns' gallery here in Singapore. Wait a minute, there's another Greg Burns somewhere? There's another Greg Burns who actually happens to be also an American male artist that does painting with his mouth because he has a physical disability, as, uh, as do I. I. I must be in the wrong place. I, I thought I was supposed to be with Greg Burns, but I'm with Gregory Burns. You're with Gregory Burns, yes. Yeah. We're going to talk about your art in just a minute, but, but, but one of the reasons I'm here speaking with you is because um, our lives have paralleled in many ways. I've been out here about 30 years. You've been out here about 35 years in this part of the world. Um, and it's interesting, some of the tales and some of the stories you have. We're going to arrive and uh, discussing a little more about art later. But before that, I always ask all, uh, all of my guests, how did you first arrive in Asia? 1983-84, I was living in California, pretty much disillusioned with the American dream, the Varnays and BMWs, wanted to get out of America, applied to multiple programs overseas, the Peace Corps, the Red Cross, uh, San Jose State Program to study Chinese painting and calligraphy in Taiwan. Long story short is uh, they took me, into, they, the Peace Corps accepted me, wanted me to go to Marrakesh, Morocco. San Jose State said, yes, we'll take you. You can go to Taiwan to study Chinese art and calligraphy. Fork in the road, I had to make a decision. I said, follow my heart, follow my art, and I turned left and I went to Taiwan, 1984. That was 1984, and, and there was no going back. You, well, you, you do go back to the U.S. now and again, but, but you've, you've actually, uh, Asia has infused your thinking, uh, the way you live, the way you operate, the way you paint. Totally. I mean, I didn't go back to America for the first 10 years I was out here. So, um, yeah, I lived in Taiwan for, for about five years. I traveled in the region for th several years, ended up living in Hong Kong for five years. I've been in, living in Singapore here now for about 23 years. Yeah. Tell us some about those travels. Where did you go when you were a, a young buck? Yeah, young buck. So Taiwan, did my program in Taiwan, which is great, Chinese painting calligraphy with a local master, Liang Danfeng. Um, so then I picked up my backpack and my paintbrushes and I uh, went to China. And I thought I'd just backpack around China for a couple of months for the summer maybe. So I spent two months around China, ended up in Tibet. I was there uh, at the, in, in Lhasa, uh, literally uh, sleeping in a corridor at the, uh, one of the monasteries outside of Lhasa. And this girl I'd met earlier in my travels came up and said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm, I'm painting. I'm copying this painting on the wall and they bring me food every day and I've been here for three days and I think she felt a little bit like worried I might never leave so she said listen a bunch of us Westerners we're renting a bus we're gonna drive to Nepal you want to come I said okay so I left the monastery the Sarah monastery yeah and I got on the bus with these Westerners and took five days to get from Lhasa to Kathmandu basically and in fact we never got to Kathmandu on the bus because the road had been washed out so I actually had to hike in from the, the end of the road in Nepal down into I'm uh, sorry the end of the road in Tibet down into Nepal yeah 
Now, for, for all you armchair travelers out there, I, this, we're talking about the mid-1980s. This is a time when, when China had, had only just started opening up. Very hard to get between one or across borders. To, to Tibet itself was, was a bit of a, a, of a journey and a challenge. Not just a journey and a challenge. I didn't know better, but because I was actually overland. I was in a place called Dunhuang in the middle of China, and I hitchhiked from Dunhuang to halfway to uh, Lhasa, and then I got on a bus. It took me two or three days, and I got to Lhasa, and I didn't realize till later, because I was in Lhasa pretty much foreigner free, and I didn't realize till later that what had transpired was it was the Dalai Lama's birthday, China had closed off Tibet to foreigners, and only foreigners only fly into Tibet, right? They don't go overland, so they were, had been blocked. So there were no foreigners there except me and like two other strangers walking around. So that was a magical time to be in Lhasa. I mean, it was really wonderful. I had some incredible experiences there at that time. And, and, and then you made your way all the way down to India. Tell us, where did you go in India? Well, first was Nepal for a month, trekking up in the Pokhara up there. Then I went all over India. I started in um, in Dharamsala, in Darjeeling, ended up in Dharamsala, ended up in Bombay. I went to Kerala. I went around. I went. To, I did India for nine months backpacking. I got um, you know you, you could only get a visa for six months, so I was able to go to a a, a, a military doctor and get Ayurvedic medicine. And I officially got a letter saying I was getting aerovitamin. And with that letter, I went to the immigration people. And if you were getting medical treatment, they would give you an extended visa. So I got to stay in, in India longer than the six months, which they usually allot you. But went all over India, then um, decided to go to, back to Taiwan via Pakistan and China. So I went, took a train through Amritsar to Islamabad, up into the Karakarams, uh, traveled around there for two months, backpacking and trekking. By this time, I was traveling with a German redhead a woman. And, and you could, could you imagine a redhead woman, this guy on crutches, going through northern Pakistan? I mean, we were the talk of the town, I tell you. you know, we were in the back of the bus, and everybody wanted to be our friend. Everybody wanted to you know, know us and talk to us. And we found, yeah, we were, it was fun. Anyway. So, yeah. so, so you, just, you just dropped a hint, which is what all our listeners right now may or may not know that you've been uh, suffering from polio since the age of one. You wear braces and, 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 you're, and you're on crutches and have been all your entire life. And yet here you are traversing some of the most inhospitable landscape the world has ever produced, both industrial and everything else. There is nothing that held you back, clearly. And this, clear, this speaks to you and your, your personality and your mindset, doesn't it? Well, I, I've always just argued that I just like to do what I like to do. So you know, not, not to say nothing gets in my way, because, you know, ask my wife, you know, I don't wash windows. I'm not very good at doing the dishes. There are things that I, you know, I choose my battles wisely. And so I've chosen the things that I love to do. And those happen to be climbing mountains and get jumping on trains. Yeah, let's talk about that jumping on the train. What, what happened that so many years ago? Tell us about that. Yeah, so there, I'm in Delhi and it's late and I'm trying to get to Dharamsala to see the Dalai Lama's place there, you know. Um, and the, 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 I found the train. I'm on the tracks next to the train and I want to get on the train, but I don't have a ticket. But this is in India. You know, in India, you can get on a train without a ticket and get the ticket on the train. So the conductor, this big guy with a mustache, is standing on the back of the train on the steps saying, you can't get on the train without a ticket. And I said, I'll get it when I'm on the train. He says, no, you can't get on the train. He says, I'm getting on the train. He says, no, you can't get on the train. The train starts to pull away. And it's, you know, so I'm walking next to the train. He's saying, no, I'm saying, yes. He's saying, no, I'm saying, yes. I take, a, I, I, there, by this time, there's a, a crowd of Indians surrounding me, kind of following, kind of watching this Punch and Judy show. So I 
I grab onto one of the railings of the train as it's moving. I hand my crutch to a complete stranger because I need one arm to hold on the train, one arm to use my other crutch to walk with. And I walk about three or four paces. I realize it's now or never. I'm getting on or I'm not. I lunge at the front steps and land at the feet of the conductor who's yelling at me, get off, you can't be on this train. And, and fortunately, the guy, the, the, he handed me my crutch. They were on my side. I mean, the, the locals were totally on my side. Yeah. And, and I said, I'll, get the, I'll buy my ticket on the train. And so I got to Dharamsala. That's right. And saw the Dalai Lama's place. Yes. yes. Yeah, well yeah. done. Yeah. So, so, and, and then you, you moved out for balmier uh, locations. You, you, you moved down into the South Pacific and traveled there as well, I understand. Well, actually, I was, um, at one point, I was living, when I was living in Taiwan, um, a, girl, a different girlfriend at that time, and I went to America to see my sister get married. This is 1990. And on the way back, we stopped in Tahiti. And I was, uh, we were supposed to be there for a week, and I was there for about three or two or three days. And I saw this really cool-looking ship on the horizon one day. And, and then it just so happened, I was painting on, the, on a jetty at sunset a couple days later, and these two girls walked up, and they said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm painting the sunset. What are you doing? They said, and they pointed at that same ship I had seen. They said, we live on that ship. I said, no kidding. What do you do on that ship? They said, well, we're part of a Danish group. There are 10 of us on board, an inter international crew. Um, we're sailing around the world making television documentaries about third world countries. And we're, pro we're making programs, 30-minute programs, that are broadcast in Europe to teach the first world about the third world. I said, that's cool. How could I possibly, you know, find out more. They said, well, why don't you come to lunch tomorrow? So they sent, sent the Zodiac, picked me up on the jetty the next day, and they took me off to the boat. And little did I know that they were planning to go from Tahiti through uh, the Cook Islands, uh, uh, Cook Islands, uh, American Samoa, Western Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, all the way to, they were heading to China. They're heading back around the world, right? So back to Denmark. And at the end of that, or in the middle, they were going to be in China. Nobody on the boat spoke Chinese. So I show up in Tahiti with some skills, because I had worked in television and writing and things, but I spoke Chinese. And they, I think the light went on to the captain, and it was like, oh, we need you. So I joined the boat, the next day sailed away. And so, <laughs> with your girlfriend on the shore, I understand. Wa waving from the shore, yes, yeah. 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 And that says it all. So, so Greg, let's, let's come, you know, and, and then when you landed in Hong Kong, there's an interesting little chapter that began to emerge. Um, you, 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 and, and as Hong Kong is, you can be so many things, and, and particularly in the early 1990s, you could literally walk out the door and decide you wanted to be an astronaut, and you could almost do it. It was just everybody was looking for talent of all sorts. What did you do when you got there? So this, the, I sailed with the boat, got to Hong Kong with the boat, left the boat in Hong Kong, and was uh, jobless and thinking, well, I want to go, I'd like to work in television since I'd been making these documentaries. So I went to Star TV, tried to get a job at Star TV. In the meantime, I went to a company called Interoptica, which is run by a, a fellow named Simon Winchester, who some of us may remember. Yeah, famous travel writer. Yeah, very famous. And uh, he had a wife. Um, and the two of them ran this company called Interoptica. We made CD-ROMs about, remember, remember CD-ROMs? Yeah, pre-internet. Pre-internet. CD-ROMs about the great wonders of the world and the great cities of the world. So I worked for that company working, making CD-ROMs. At the same time, I managed to finally get a job at Star TV working for Prime Sports. And I was working, so I had a 9 to 5 with Interoptica. And I was working 9 p.m. till 9 a.m., three days a week and all day Saturday at Star TV when it was in Hong Hum. When they were just starting out, starting which is way out on the other side of the island, which is on the, it's on it's the Kowloon side, but um, yeah, and that's where their their facility was at that time. The Star TV had been around a, like a year. It was still Richard Lee. It had just started out. Yeah. So I worked for them for a year, and I was working um, for. So I had the two full time jobs, and then I was 
uh, training, uh, by the way, I was training for the 1992 Barcelona Paralympics in swimming. As one does. As one does, on my lunch hour, and a little bit before I went to work, if I had time to go to work, before. And uh, a, a lovely guy, Simon Brattle, at the, at the Shangri-La Hotel there, let me train at the gym there. So I, had, I trained at the Shangri-La. I worked in the day. I took the Star Ferry to, to, to Hong Kong at night, kind of slept on the ferry, then worked at night, slept a little bit, went back to work. So I had a really bad, you know, it wasn't a great training schedule, but I trained... Um, for the Barcelona Paralympics and then I had to get sponsorship to go to Barcelona because at that time Paralympians were not funded by the Olympic, American Olympic Committee so I lo looked and found a bunch of um, a friend of mine gave me names of all the multi American multinationals in Hong Kong and so I sent out letters you know with stamps on them with the letter you know not, no digital the first company to sponsor me was a company maybe you've heard of it's called KFC Kentucky Fried Chicken so they said uh, I walked up and to met the HR director, he said, um, "Here, we'll give you 25 percent of what you need. Hope it'll help you to leverage the rest." So I got the I got money. I went to Barcelona. I won some medals. I'm in Barcelona. I take a big chicken leg. I take my medals. I take a photo. So I think I'll give this to them. Apple computer. You know, I took a bite of an apple and my medals. Anyway, I went back to my sponsors and gave them pictures. So I went back to KFC with this picture, with this chicken leg and my medals, and they said. You know, do you, and I, I came in in my, in my sweatsuit, you know, USA, I thought I'd impress them with this. And they said, you know, do you happen to have a suit, like a, like a suit and tie? I said, well, yeah. I said, would you come back on Monday because we think we want to offer you a job? I said, well, that'd be interesting, but doing what? They said, not sure. We'll figure that out when you get here. So come back on Monday. Long story short is they offered me a job doing corporate communications. And the, the, part, the, the, the thing was I'd been working two full-time jobs, and they kind of covered that whole amount. So I was making as much as I was working two times. And I only had to work nine to five, Monday to Friday. And then the real clincher was, it's KFC, and I only eat fish and chicken. And I was born in the year of the chicken. And then they said, oh, by the way, before you can work for KFC, you have to spend a month in a KFC restaurant. And the closest KFC here is um, it's in Waikiki. So you'd have to go to Waikiki for a month. We'll put you up in a, in a flat and you, you know, give you a car and drive. Not a driver. You, you, so, you can, so I rented a, a Mustang and I... <laughs> I lived in Hawaii for a month. And I, I, the worst, I said, worst case scenario is I spend my month in Hawaii and I quit, you know. So, <laughs> but I, you know, I stayed on with them and had a great corporate, if you will, corporate career working for KFC for five years. And, and, and so if, if for listeners out there, if, if you're not getting it, um, dream it and it can be is kind of the theme of this, uh, this episode. <laughs> well, it was funny. I tell you, the first time I always, this is another kind of a side story, but when I, in 87, I was working in Taiwan for a magazine and I backpacked through... Uh, I flew to Thailand, went overland through Malaysia into Singapore, then flew from Singapore to Bali, to, to uh, Sumatra, then backpacked across Sumatra to Bali, then flew back to Taiwan via Singapore. So I claim that the first time I ever slept in Singapore, I slept well, I landed in Singapore at 6 p.m. one night, and my flight back to Taiwan was 6 a.m. the next day. And that was at a time in Singapore, 1987, where they didn't have backpacker places. They only had high-end hotels. And so I wasn't going to spend two or three hundred dollars to spend the night in a hotel to sleep till four in the morning. So, so I went to a bar and I drank and I had a you know a, a kind of a, a wild night. And I stumbled out of this bar, a cowboy bar, next to the Hyatt Hotel. And I stumbled into the lobby of the Hyatt Hotel, and I kind of sat in a chair in the lobby of the Hyatt Hotel, nodding off now and then and kind of drooling a bit until the the concierge would bump me and say, "You can't sleep here, you know, can't sleep here." So. So I claim that's the first time I slept at the Grand Hyatt in, in Singapore. So fast forward, you know, five years later or whatever, and, and I joined KFC. And the first place they send me after Hawaii is Singapore. So I fly into Singapore business class, 
picked up in a limousine. They take me to the Grand High and they put me in a junior suite with a food fruit basket. You know, I think. So now this is the second time I say at the Grand High. So I, my point here is that I think it's important that we can. It's the yin and the yang. You know, you can be the backpacker, you can be the business class, and you, and you can you can float between the two, and you don't get attached to either one. This is Inside Asia. I've been speaking with Singapore-based artist and world traveler Gregory Burns. More in a moment. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. This is Steve Stein, and I'm speaking with Gregory Burns, world traveler, artist, and Olympian. We spent the first part of the program talking about Greg's travels through Asia. In the second part of my conversation, we honed in on his life's twin passions, art and swimming. Back to our discussion. There are two underlying themes that have driven your life and driven your enthusiasm, which are swimming and art. Uh, you touched on swimming just then, but let's talk about your art a little bit. Let's switch over and, and, and how you arrived at art, w what it's meant to you, um, how you've uh, allowed it to evolve over time, who's influenced you. Just give us a few a little tidbits on this and, and how it keeps kind of coming in and out of your life throughout this, uh, you know, the last 30, 40 years. Well, f actually more like 55 years. So I started when I was five years old. I was living in Paris. Um, my father's in the Foreign Service. We lived in Paris. Uh, and I, I like to draw comic books. I like to draw. I, liked, I took art classes and I enjoyed art. And I've always, en I always enjoyed art as I was growing up. And, you know, I always got an A in art, a C in math. So I figured, to me, that's a B. You know, that's 3.0. That's okay. So anyway, um, I'm, I'm doing art and getting a lot of, you know, everybody's liking it. And I'm saying, yeah, that's cool. You know, that's great. You know, but I never took it. Like, you know, you, when I was a kid, I was, you know, role models were uh, Perry Mason, so I was going to be a lawyer, or, you know, there's FDR, he had polio, I had polio, he was a president, I could be president, you know, so anyway, I had these kind of law, th the idea of just being a, an, just being an artist, I say that, and with all due respect to artists, but being an artist was not really on the, on the menu, so, you know, I just grew up painting all my life and, and carrying on. It wasn't until I got into, at, I went to Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a little Amish town in the middle of Pennsylvania, and I, I took my first figure drawing class. So here I am, 18 years old, and I'm, I'm in this class with a bunch of other green artists. The professor comes in and talks a bit and then says, let me introduce you to Mary. And, and Mary is this voluptuous woman who walks into the middle of the room wearing a bathrobe, which she quickly takes off, and she's stark naked, of course, and I'm 18 years old, and there's a stark naked woman in front of me, and I'm thinking, I've definitely found some place that I think I can belong. So I started drawing feverishly the nude, and really, as in, in all in seriousness, the nude is, to me, the building blocks of any good artist. You know, you, you paint the nude, if you can paint the nude, you can paint anything. You can paint a tree, you can paint a landscape, you can do anything. So, well, so why the, is that? Because the, the, the figure has all the shapes that you will find anywhere in the world, anywhere in nature. Like the, the, the shapes of uh, a tree, the, the foreshortening. If, you, if, I, if, I, if I put my hand towards your face, you look at my arm, you can, my fingers, but you can see my finger, you can't see my arm, but you, it's foreshortened, right? So the, the way you paint the nude and figure out how to paint the nude, if you can do that and you learn, and it's difficult, it's challenging, it's the, it's the building box, but if you can paint the nude, you can paint anything. And were you good at that? 
I was pretty good at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and then and then as you went, but but that's not what you ended up. Oh, well, you, well, I guess you painted a little bit of everything, haven't you? Uh, all from nudes to Buddhas. Sure. Um, but 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 how has your art since? And let's come back back fast forward to Asia. How is how has Asia influenced your art and your ideas about art? Well. If, um, the, the nude and nature, I would say, were my big themes. And, and artists like um, Van Gogh, Zhang Dachan, a Chinese artist, Mark Rothko, R Richard Diebenkorn, these are all um, you know, figures, big, big figures I look up to. But when I got to Asia, I was, I was doing realistic work. I was doing, um, drawing buildings, and I liked landscapes and buildings and people, and it was all quite realistic. And then I was living in Hong Kong, and I was, I was a bit frustrated because in Hong Kong there was no real, there's nature, but I couldn't paint nature. So I was, I was sitting at the end of my bed and I took my Chinese painting and calligraphy brushes that I had from Taiwan. And I was sitting on the end of my bed and I started just playing with the brushes and ink and paint in my little, you know, eight foot by eight foot flat in, in, in uh, Causeway Bay. And I started just kind of doing abstract paintings with these brushes. And, and so that's when I first developed any kind of inkling of abstract art. So I started, I, so then I started taking that and I started bringing in, um, I started traveling around Asia and I started to do sacred sites, which I would call, you know, Buddhist, Taoist, uh, Hindu, Christian sites. So I'd go to these sacred sites and I'd sit there for hours and hours and I'd paint. And I'd try to paint the feeling of being in a temple, the sanctity, the quietness, the thousands of years of millions of people that have walked through there and poured their, poured their hearts out or asked for stuff or had been at one with their God, whatever that was, in these sacred places. So I found sacred sites to be sanctuaries. And again, being in Asia in the 80s and the 90s was a bit of a, it was a wild and crazy time. You know, you, I, was, I was, as a quote-unquote sensitive artist, constantly looking for sanctuaries, looking for places where I could be at peace and get away from the craziness of India or China or the Bedlam and, and, and be, you know, go back inside myself. So sacred sites was a big theme and a, a, lot, of, you know, a lot of Buddhas, a lot of temples. And then in, in the mid-late mid, 90s, I started to do these portals, or what I called portals, or gateways to sanctuaries. So there was... Well, let me, let me come back to that in a second, because you're saying, I mean, it, it, is art your meditation? Yes. Art, art has become my meditation, my, my, my religion. You know, and I, that's not a fun, it's a weird way to say it, but you know, I don't really go to church much. I go to temples. I'll go to churches when there's no one there. I'll paint in churches, you know, play my flute in churches. I'll hang out in churches, but I, I kind of don't go to service. Anymore. I, was, I call myself a, you know, a reformed Catholic or, or you know, I've, I was raised as a Catholic. You know, I, have, I have Christian moorings for sure. I, have a, I think I'm, I try to live a Christian-like life, but um, I have Buddhist mooring and Taoist mooring, so I'm, I'm kind of, my religion or my, where I, how I calm myself, focus myself, communicate with my, my uh, greater spirit is, is a lot through painting, and that happened a lot through these sacred paintings, sacred sites, but also it's in my studio. It's right here where we're standing right now. I will, you know, when I'm painting, I'm, I'm dancing, I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm wondering why, I'm asking questions, I'm, I'm in doubt, I'm trying to find my way, I'm stumbling in the dark, um, you know, trying to find a light and trying to find answers. And in fact, an interesting uh, transition, these portals were transitions of, you know, going from like employed to unemployed or from married, not married to married or from a student to a, a working person, an adult. So these transitions and 
after I left uh, the corporate world in, in 1998, because of the Asian economic crisis, I was no longer needed. Um, well, actually, my salary was three times what they could hire a local for. So I was here in Singapore, given my pink slip, and, and, and left and decided, well, why don't I try to pursue a, a full-time career as an artist and a motivational speaker. So I was 40 years old. It was time to do something different. So I, tran I you know, I, I let go of the security of the, you know, the mother nipple of the corporate giant and let myself into finding my own, buy my own stamps and find my own internet connection, find my own apartment, you know, that whole transition of getting out of the corporate world into, back into a, a normal world. Uh, decided I would go back and do my MFA, did my Master's of Painting at La Salle, right down the street. Um, did my Master's because I had, a, I had the opportunity to work with a guy named Malenko Pravacci, who's an, uh, an incredible artist and teacher at La Salle at the time. So I did my Master's with him. And while I was doing my Master's, I was trying to find my next theme. So transitions, portals, that was one thing, but you know, go beyond that, where, where, where do you go from there? And I and I I thought of why portals, what or thresholds? What, what what was it about that? That that what did that represent for you? Well, the poor transitions, going from one place to another, a, tra a change, going from being some you know from uh, from one something from from nothing to something or from something to nothing or whatever that was, a transition from one state of life to another. So, so did I learned recently that threshold comes from the term threshing, which is where they beat. Uh, the grain to separate uh, the, the, the chafe from the, from the seed. And that was the breaking apart. That was the splitting. And I always thought of threshold as the crossing through place, but it's actually the place where an act is performed before the crossing. That's... I like that. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I, I think of the Japanese temples that have that big stone out in front of that temple, or, or a tea house, and that big flat stone where you step and then you take off your shoes and you step into the sacred place or the tea house, that threshold and that, so that, and, that. And that lip on the threshold is to keep the bad spirits out is what I was told. Is that your understanding? I, I think so. As, as with Chinese temples, there's a step that you have to step, yeah, they keep the step, temp, temp, the bad spirits out of the temple, yeah. Or, or is, it, is it just that aspect of intention? That, that, that in order to cross, you have to cross with intention? I would agree with that. Mm. Whether that's there was their intention of that or not, I think that's a big part of it. I think that's a that is a you you stop one thing, you take off the the outside robe, or, and you put on or re-engage with your inside robe or your inside spirit, and and step into a sacred space or a, a place where you can be quieter or be contemplative and be at one with. With, a, with the greater universe, yeah. So, so was this, it's for you, was it intentional painting and, and rendering of portals in this phase of your art, or was it just trying to understand what the attraction of the portal was and then working it back to understand what that meant? I think it was part of me in transition. It was, it was realizing that all of us are in transition. It was, I, I think it was using that imagery or that, that theme as a, as a metaphor for myself and for others as well. And, um, and I remember, you know, I started to draw on or write, not write, but give titles to my paintings like, um, don't be afraid to give up what you have for what you might become. Again, the idea that, you know, you, you might have to leave something on this side of the door before you step into the, uh, through that door or that tra transition into the other side. So uh, don't be afraid to get from good to great as well. I mean, that's the same theme. 
And, and of course, this is where you and I, uh, our, our philosophical lives cross a bit, where you discovered around this time, as I did, Joseph Campbell. Exactly. So, so there I was doing my MFA, looking for this next theme after transitions. Transitions, what's that? And I stumbled upon Thomas Kincaid, who, like him or love him as an artist, he had, Kincaid had found this universal theme, which I was attracted to, this idea that some, uh, one idea relates to everybody on the planet. All seven million people can relate to this beautiful house in the hill, place at the end of the rainbow that, that Kincaid painted. And at the same time, I stumbled onto Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. And this idea that Joseph Campbell, looking at all religions, cultures, nations of the world, came up with, I guess, his synopsis or his idea that there is a hero's journey or this journey that we all take in our lives. Shared experiences and also shared uh, um, objects or shared symbols. Uh, the monomyth, mono I think, is what he referred to it as. Exactly, the monomyth. So I looked at his monomyth, which is there are 12 parts or maybe there's 16 parts. Anyway, I looked at the whole thing and I kind of... Uh, condensed it, if you will. I broke the, the Joseph Campbell's monomyth into a four-part series and for the sim simplified it to four parts and I'll, the four parts that I came up with was number one is home, status quo, where you are at this point. Number two, launch, depart, leave, take a trip, do something, change something. Initiation. Initiation. Number three, you go through a transition, you discover something, you find something, you contemplate something, you discover what you were, went on this journey to look for it. On this Good, bad, and ugly, the underworld. The underworld. Once you've, well, if you found it, or maybe you haven't, at some point, game over, time over, go home, return, take, re resolve. So return, resolve, you figure it out, go back to where you started from, Maybe you share what you learned. Maybe people want to listen to you. Maybe they don't. You know, you go back to your hometown and they could care less that you've lived in Tibet or Mongolia. They just, you know, they want to watch if the football game is on. But long story short, as you do return, you take what you've learned and uh, grown through that, that, if you will, that journey, which can be traumatic, which can be deadly. You may not even survive it for that matter. But you take what you've learned back home and share it with your tribe, whatever that tribe is. So did these four steps of, of the condensed version of Campbell's Hero's Journey then inform the next four chapters of your artistic career? Totally, totally. They became my guiding light. They, I, I did my whole series. Um, my series, my MFA series, was called Traveling and Arriving in Search of Sanctuary. And it basically what were several four-part series that were four parts, which represented home which represented departing, which represented contemplation, which re represented return. And then there was another, I said, well, listen, I'm a swimmer. I can relate this to my swimming race. I start my race. I launch. Then I build, build my speed. Then I hit the wall and I turn. Then I come back and I finish. So I took this kind of four parts and I kind of applied it to other things. And so that's been kind of a guiding light for me for the last almost 20 years now. And, and there's also, you just mentioned water. Water is an aspect that keeps popping up, if you will, in, in your art. And, and water, of course, mythologically and even from a depth psychology perspective is powerful. It represents the subconscious, the unconscious. 
Cool. So, well, so, so the, in the unconscious, there's the waking, which is above, and there's the sleeping, which is below. So I noticed just by moving around your gallery and seeing some of the art that, that you have impressions of images or impressions of, of bodies moving down into water or being underwater or being consumed by water. And perhaps you're doing this just the way Campbell would and, and Jung and others would hope you'd do it um, un unconsciously. And therefore, that's where the art is rendered from. What do you think of that? I believe that's... Uh, I believe you're right, and I believe also that art, you know, having swum since I was three or four years old and being a Paralympian and still scuba diving and surfing and loving water, um, that theme and the most recent theme I've been, it's called Sea Swells. Um, it's a series of paintings that are about, you know, what is, what is the sea? It's not trying to represent the sea. It's not trying to, to paint the sea. It's trying to represent or paint um, the feeling of being in the sea or being that, you know, that circular motion which a wave is as it rolls across you know, the ocean and, and it hits the shore and it goes up and gradually crests because it runs out of energy and it deposits itself on the beach or whatever. So what is that feeling? What's it feel like to be inside, enveloped by water, up, down, or sideways, whatever that is, if, as a human? So I started painting these, these water series and I did put humans in them all. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh because they all drowned. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't drown, but I, I realized that they were too uh, realistic. And I'm, I, they, my paintings are kind of, I call myself an abstract impressionist. So they're abstract, but there's impressions. But these impressions of humans were like overpowering. So I, I didn't paint them out completely. They're still there. Maybe they're the unconscious me. They're, they're, they're images of, of figures in water or under, and literally in water because you can't really, you can make them out, but they're, there's, there's as if you were looking into a, a swimming pool or into the ocean and there's a, oh, there's a figure down there somewhere. But, you know, so you don't see all the, you know, the, the nose and the mouth and the eyes. You see some faint silhouette or something of a figure. So, because these paintings are really kind of, for me, that, the feeling of being in the ocean, like as a scuba diver or as a snorkeler, you know, to swim down under the water, hold your breath, hold onto a piece of coral maybe, and just sit there silently maybe not because those parrotfish are chewing the coral and they make a lot of noise but you know just silently sit there and watch as the ocean around you you know accepts you realizes you're not going to eat it and all the fish start coming back and they start nibbling at you and you're just hanging on there and watching that water world which is quite foreign to the world we're in most of the time but being underwater and being with water is such a hugely inspirational to me and uh, emotional and memory and uh, just a, a wonderful freeing place to be again with 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 my disability you could argue that you know when I walk around with braces and crutches I'm somewhat challenged when I get in the water no disrespect but you know I'm faster than you are and I can swim you know, farther than you can. And I have water wings. You have water wings. <laughs> yeah, watch me go. <laughs> but water was the great equalizer. Yeah. You know, me and water, whether it was playing Marco Polo or the game Shark and Minnows when you hold your breath and swim underwater. So I've been playing in water for, you know, six decades, five, five plus decades. And How has your disability informed your life? Were you just this way or by feeling... Uh, you know, being disabled from the age of one, you felt like uh, determined to, to, to live life as completely as you possibly could. You know, I don't think I ever thought about it that way. I mean, I, I would love to look back and have that figured out, but no. I think 
I don't know how I would have been otherwise. So I don't know if this was hardwired in, if it was brought on by people telling me, no, you can't do that, and, and maybe me saying, I'll show you I can do that. I mean, there, I'm, there, is, I, there is a part of me that's proving myself. I start to, in this decade of my life, try to let go of that, so stop trying to prove myself. But I think there has been a part, part of me has just been, um, I like, and I've liked, and I'll continue to like doing things with my body. I like to see if I can physically move from point A to point B by myself without taking a car, a train, or a plane. So it just, to me, that, maybe it's the cha being challenged, you know, mobility challenged has made me just embrace that and cherish and relish that and also challenge me. So, you know, I will take a wheelchair now to run around Singapore because it's so wheelchair accessible. It's one of the most amazing places to be in a wheelchair because I can take the train and the bus. But if I'm ever going along in my wheelchair and somebody comes up behind me and wants to push me, you know, I'm, I've got to the point now where I stop punching them. I'm just kidding. I've never punched anybody in my life. But, but, but you know, I, I say thank you very much, but don't, please don't push me. And, and because this is what I do. This is, I am mobility. I am, so whether it's climbing to the top of Half Dome in Yosemite, whether it's walking the Grand Canyon, whether it's hiking from Namche Bazaar to Lukla in, Lukla to Namche Bazaar in Nepal, or climbing Mount Kinabalu, um, Jade Mountain in Taiwan, um, Lishan, Lushan, Omeshan in China, uh, Huangshan in China. Uh, it took me two days to get to the top of Huangshan. I'm slow, but I'll get there. Greg, I, I mean, through these years, many of the places name me, I love mountains, I've loved mountains my whole life, and I know these places, and then when you tell me this, and I hear this, I know how tough that was for me, yeah. with, with, you know, full leg mobility and everything else. I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm just it, it shocked and impressed beyond, beyond words. It's really, it's really something, but I want to ask you something, really, the eclectic nature of your life. You, you have your sport, the physical, you've got your art, you have your fascination, your, your participation in corporate. I mean, are, are, are you insane, or are you just incre incredibly interesting? I think I'm <laughs> maybe both. Yeah. I would say that's probably insanely interesting. <laughs> there we go. I like that. Yeah. yeah, you know, I just, I just have, I've like, I'm curious. I've been curious, and and I've liked to do so many different things, and um, some of them are connected. And you know, I, I actually the other day I was thinking, you know, I don't really know much at all except you know painting and swimming and that's about all I really know about in my life like yes I did corporate communications and I can write and I can you know I, I my grandmother used to think I could sing but I certainly can't sing but you know there are things that I've looked at and said oh, I want to do that and then I just had to figure out a way to do it in, in this time and age so many people are, are told to specialize to focus to be the best at one thing we see it in high school sports in the US you see it in corporate jobs and people are you know trying to achieve that CFO or CEO role at all costs yeah. um, but then when you see people arriving at those 45 50 55 years old there's this aspect of, of um, unanticipated misery this starts to occur. Like, I've run the gauntlet, I've arrived at this endpoint, I'm the best at what I do, but I've devoided myself or denied myself art, music, love, history. There's so many things that, that fall by the wayside. As a great eclectic, what would you say about that? And what uh, advice might you offer to people who um, have arrived at that point and might be having second thoughts about that journey? Well, first of all, you know, when I, I worked for five years in a corporate job, and honestly, it was easier than working two full-time jobs without, you know, but my, the whole time I was working in a corporate job, I was painting. 
and I would go on a trip and I, whether you know I was going to Vietnam or wherever, I would tack on a couple days at the beginning or the end, like the weekend or whatever, for myself to go and paint or do what I do. Um, and so I, I kept painting and I kept exhibiting all the time I was, I've always done that. I mean, I've been painting and exhibiting for, well, exhibiting since the 70s and painting since the 60s. So, um, you know, I'm an old man and this is, you know, this is just what I've been doing for so long. But I think to your, to your point about what to do if you got the golden ring and now what? And I'd say, you know, hopefully before you got there, you kept your hobbies close to you, whatever those are, you know basket weaving, running, you know, playing an instrument, doodling, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of things available for humans to do, not as distractions, or maybe as distractions, or maybe it makes them feel good, or, you know, um, for whatever reason, you know, nurture those, keep them close to you, don't let them fall by the wayside completely. And, you know, I think once, you know, we look back, it, you know, often I, what do you want to do with your life or what, what, well, what did you do? What did you like when you were young? What did you do when you were a kid? Mm. You know? Be playful again. Be playful again. And mm. that's so hard to, to do, I think, because we're, we get so, you know, caught up in our intellectuals side of ourselves and, you know, responsibilities and, um, you know, trying to, you know, trying to, to, to acquire, acquire or, and, or fortunate or more importantly, you know, become something, something that we think is, is valuable. And, um, if we can kind of relax that a bit and, and, you know, golf, I mean, I have a mixed feeling about golf. You know, I, I, I remember when I was, uh, when I was doing corporate communications, they were, and they were, play, you know, they sent me to, 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 to set up the, the event. I'd say, okay, instead of golf, could maybe we go scuba diving? You know, <laughs> what do you think about surfing together? You know, anyway, golf. So, I mean, work on your golf, but you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that we can and probably need to do to re-engage ourselves with something that's meaningful to us, that gives us meaning again in our lives. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to go out and, you know, be Tiger Woods and, and come back and what a great story that is. Let's not get sidetracked, but that's in a great, you know, the rise and the fall um, and the rise again. And, um, but, you know, having something else that you do, not necessarily to make a living at. Mm. I worry about people, especially young people, that try to make a living as an artist. I think that's, I never had that. I never started, I never tried to make a living as an artist. And as an artist right now, I paint. And by the way, if you want to buy my painting, that's cool. But I don't, and if you commission me to do a painting, I'll do a painting like you want, that's cool. But I've been painting for 50 years what I feel I should paint. And I think people that unfortunately have to paint for an audience get, a little bit short-circuited or, or I'm, I'm sad to say that I think that that's uh, unfortunate well but yet yet it's the age-old artist dilemma it goes back to the 14th century doesn't it not well they had patrons yeah and you're right you paint the paint the 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 the, uh, the, the people or the, the the God you know Christ or whatever it was yeah in, in, in order to get a little uh, pocket change to do yeah. what the hell you want to do yeah or you teach and right. you, know, you know that's always the other one you can teach and um, you know and I, for me I, you know, I did a lot of different, you know, I, I taught English in Taiwan, I made documentaries, I, you know, I worked in magazines, um, but at the same time I was always painting. And so I think painting, to, live, to be an artist or a musician or an actor, I think you need to live a big life. And I think a big life is doing a lot of things. And um, to have a lot of, you know, you don't have to use all the colors on your palette, but it's better to have a palette with 24, or 36, or 58 colors than two. Mm. or three you know so you don't have to use them all but you don't want to make a mess you know you don't have to you know 
blah, you don't have to be a splatter all the time, but you know, to have the opportunity or the option to, to pick it, you know, I'll pick green today or peach tomorrow or, you know, uh, I think having op options like that and, and allowing yourself that. What apropos words of wisdom, Greg, Gregory, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a great to be with you. That was my conversation with artist and Olympian medal winner, Gregory Burns. For regular Inside Asia listeners, you probably picked up on the fact that I let our conversation meander more than usual. That's with intent. The artist's way is circuitous, and so it is in this week's Asia Insider Minute that I contemplate the power of the creative journey. In this episode, we've touched on the man and the mission and the interplay of the two. Gregory's personal story is exceptional. He's lived from the age of two with polio, but that never stopped him from thinking past his disability to open up the possibilities. Denied the use of his legs, swimming became the great equalizer. In a pool, he could compete with the best, which he did in the 1992, 96, and 2000 Paralympic Games, coming home with two golds, two silver, and one bronze medal. For most, that would be enough. For Gregory, it was just one step, or stroke as the case may be, in his exceptional life journey. His accomplishments as an athlete speak for themselves, but what really impresses me about Greg is his boundless curiosity and the way his art informs his life and his life his art. For Greg, the theme of crossing over or passing through looms large as a motivational image and a meditative mantra. There's a sense of restlessness and movement in almost everything he does, yet every push forward is sublimely paired with an epiphany and a new way of being. Like a snake shedding its skin, Gregory has moved through his own life, transforming himself professionally, artistically, and spiritually. Movement, whether a protest against his childborn disability or an expression of his boundless curiosity, propels him forward. Don't be afraid to give up what you have for what you might become, he tells us. So what can those of us less gifted learn from the artist? Perhaps that unbound experience of any kind can only help enrich us. Maybe it's the importance of discipline, always pursuing one's art even in the midst of life's more practical demands. Or might Gregory and other artists of his ilk be saying to us that there's a thin line drawn between the sacred and the profane, that the threshold is not an obstruction, but rather an invitation to pass from what has been to what could be. The 19th century American writer and naturalist Henry David Thoreau claimed that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Is it possible that the artist offers us a way out? Leap and the net will appear, writes Julia Cameron in her book, The Artist's Way. So think on this, my corporate denizens. Next time you find yourself quietly asking yourself, what am I doing in this job and with my life? Put down the phone, close a laptop, and pick up a brush, a pen, or a can of spray paint. Find some paper or an office wall and let loose the demons of your quiet desperation. There's a Van Gogh in all of us, and even if the fruits of your effort make the art critic wince, you'll have the satisfaction of reckless expression. And if, in the process, the portal appears, take my advice and walk through it. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, Created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.